Hello. This is required viewing. Nice. <laughs> you should hit the. I can do it now because we're definitely con air. Con air. I should put it out to our fan base, whoever they may be, to make us a con air sign. I hate that movie. Yeah. That movie is dumb. I don't like Nicolas Cage. But it's a movie reference. It is. It's like fun. I, I, I would like the sign better than the movie. Have yeah, because it would have nothing to do with the movie. Yeah. And I think that's what would make it so funny. <laughs> the fact that we don't like it. Well, I don't even remember it. I know I've seen it. I know it was on TV in bits and pieces. Con Air? You've never... No, I just don't Michael just made it. me rewatch that fairly recently within the last like year and a half. Made he... you. Yeah. I was, I must say, he was like, no, you gotta give it a chance. Give it a rewatch. That one and The Rock. We watched both of those. <laughs> Like last year, sometime isn't okay, okay, okay. And they're both not isn't, stellar. Isn't The Rock the one with Sean Connery? Yes, and it's got the, the whole plane. speech about the prom queen. Yes. So there was some kid that I went to design school with. Stop it! I feel like I already know where this is going. Who got a tattoo? No. With that stupid fucking saying. That's not where I thought this was going. <laughs> And it's like right here, like under the belly button. That's not good. Like, what is it? Like, so and so never wins, but losers go home with the prom queen or whatever the fuck it is. It's dumb. And a lot of bros quote it. This guy was definitely a. That guy's going to end up on one of those tattoo redo shows one of these <laughs> days. And he's going to have a giant, like, stomach piece to cover that shit up. Or he's going to have a giant scar there because he went and got it lasered off. That's always what I tell people that want to go and get... They're like, I'll just get a laser. You're like, okay, that's... But it's going to scar over. Double, if not triple the price. So maybe even more than that. And it's going to... You're going to have a fat, ugly scar in the sh shitty shape of what your tattoo used to be. <laughs> so think about it. Yeah, it doesn't really disappear. It doesn't go away. It just, uh, it turns scarred. It they, it takes the it's pigment a scarred out. version of it. Yeah. yeah. And it just looks like a weird. Commitment. That's lumpy... what people don't understand about tattoos is. Commitment. It's a commitment. That's why I waited to get to my, my first tattoo till I was 29. You wait and you do your research. Luckily when I, I didn't about do it for my a really long I time. I waited on my first one and I knew exactly what I wanted. But I did not do my research. And it's still okay, and I like it, but it could be better. It could be retouched, I think. That's what needs to happen. But my other ones, gorgeous, because I waited even longer, and I did a lot of research. I wish I could find a tattoo artist who would barter with me. I would give goods. No, you giggle <laughs> and laugh and shit, but I know plenty of hairstylists that used to trade hairstyling, mm -hmm. Like services for tattoos, no, I have I think fucking it's just seen like it. The term and it makes barter. me mad because I can't find anyone who is willing to do that with me. I want tattoos. I'll color your hair. 
This is like a well, service no, I, for service trade here. I'm not la- Yeah, no, I'm not laughing at that. I'm laughing at the word barter because usually when you go, listen, hear me out. Let's barter. People are like, fuck you. Like, but well, here's what's however, up. I've I've heard of artists doing that before, like creatives trading for other things because Dracula does that shit. That's how he's got so many tattoos. Yeah, man. Also, bartering, the word bartering is coming back into the lexicon. There is a barter talk on TikTok now. Because everything's There's outrageously a of, expensive. Exactly. There's a <clears throat> bunch of people using TikTok to band together and trade goods and services for other goods and services. And that's how we're going to get socialization in America. We're just going to do it ourselves. We're going to tear everything down from the bottom up. Pretty much. If you won't let anybody in. Speaking about not letting people in. (laughs) I feel like that's a good segue. Oh, my God. Welcome back to the Required Viewing Podcast. (laughs) I'm Aaron. I'm Chloe. (laughs) I'm the queen of segues. That shit's great. That was amazing. (sighs) Um, We continue our chat on race in Hollywood this week. That's what I meant by not getting in. They don't let. No, brown people in. in. Not fully brown people. Not fully brown people. And not really not fully brown people either. It's just hard to get in Hollywood. Doesn't matter who you are. I I know. I know. I know. We need to I know. We need to get you a, like a set of soft props. Yeah, to squeeze like and squish. Squishy, yeah. Like little stress I'm balls. A fidgeter. I'm a fidgeter. Like a variety of stress balls, you know. Not just the ordinary one. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're continuing with our chat on race this week with Merle Oberon. Merle. Sounds like a villain. I think of cowboys. Oh, yeah. What's another famous Merle? I don't know many famous Merles, man. I feel like there's at least one, one other one. I don't got it. I don't know. I don't got it. That's not a very unique name. It is. Would you say bring back Merle as a no, name? No. <laughs> that name is ugly as fuck. We're going to leave that one dead. Um, her, She is a much more interesting woman Probably than her some name. some Merles out there. They're like, aw. Anyway. Anyway. Let's, uh, let's just die. I don't really have much business stuff at the top of the show. Um, so we can just dive into Merle Oberon and who she is and... Yeah, I want to know more. I do feel like an older generation probably knows who she is, but we as young whippersnappers, we try to be cross-generational, intergenerational, if you will, much like our favorite TV show. But let's not talk about that right now. We don't need to Oh, no, we tangent. can't talk about that one. But intergenerational. Anyway, so Merle Oberon, born Estelle Merle O'Brien Thompson. Oberon O'Brien. I get it. Okay, I hear it now. She was born in Bombay, British India on the 19th of February, uh, 1911. So she would have been over over 100 years old now. Mm-hmm. Merle was given the nickname Queenie as a child in honor of Queen Mary, who visited India along with King George V in 1911, the same year as her birth. For most of her life, Merle protected herself by concealing the truth of her parentage, claiming that she had been born in Tasmania, Australia, and that her birth records had been destroyed in a fire. 
She was raised as the daughter of Arthur Torrance O'Brien Thompson, a British mechanical engineer from Darlington who worked in India, uh, who worked on India Railways, and his wife Charlotte Shelby, which is a kick-ass name, Charlotte Shelby. This sounds like something from Peaky Blinders. Yeah, for sure. Charlotte was a Eurasian from present-day Sri Lanka. Her mother also had Maori ancestry. However, according to her birth certificate, Merle's biological mother was Charlotte's then 12-year-old daughter. Scandal. Yeah, well, that happened. That happened. That happened a lot. Oh, yeah. Your daughter gets pregnant. She's too young to have the baby. She disappears for a year, and then you have a baby, a new baby that go you adopted. Out. Yeah, go hang yeah. out with an it aunt happens. or an uncle somewhere, some far off. Go to a distant school for exactly. A year. So to avoid any scandal, Charlotte raised Merle as Constance's half sister. Charlotte had herself given birth to Constance at the age of fourteen as a result of a rape by Henry Alfred Selby, an Anglo-Irish foreman of a tea plantation. In 1914, when Merle was three, Arthur Thompson joined the British Army and later died of pneumonia on the Western Front during the Battle of Somay. Merle and Charlotte led an impoverished existence in shabby flats in Bombay for a few years. Then, in 1917, they moved to better circumstances in Calcutta. Oberon received a foundation scholarship to attend La Matrie Calcutta for Girls. It's a private school. Mm -hmm. She got to go to private school. For a bit. For a tiny bit. There, she was constantly taunted for her mixed, mixed ethnicity, of course, eventually leading her to quit school and receive lessons at home. Oberon first performed with the Calcutta Amateur Dramatic Society. She was also completely enamored with films and enjoyed going out to nightclubs. Indian journalist Sunda Dakota Ray claimed that Merle worked as a telephone operator in Calcutta under, under the name Queenie Thompson and won a contest at Ferropino's restaurant there before the outset of her film and her budding career. In Free Pio's in 1929, Merle met a former actor, Colonel Ben Finney, and she dated him. However, when he saw Charlotte one night at her flat, he realized Oberon was of mixed ancestry and ended their relationship immediately. However, Finney promised to introduce her to Rex Ingram of Victorian Studios, whom he had known through his relationship with the late Barbara Lamar, if she were prepared to travel to France, which she readily did. After packing up all their belongings and moving to France, Oberon and her mother found that their supposed benefactor avoided them. Although he had left good word for Oberon with Ingram at the studio in Nice, Ingram liked Oberon's exotic appearance and quickly hired her to be an extra in a party scene in a film named The Three Passions. <laughs> Oberon arrived in England for the first time in 1928 at the age of 17. She worked as a club hostess under the name Queenie O'Brien. I actually think Queenie O'Brien is a way more kick-ass name than Merle Oberon. No offense. But Merle Oberon was much more exotic back then. Yeah, I guess. And 
there was a lot more hatred for Irish people back then. <laughs> that is also true. <laughs> so uh, O'Brien uh, was the name she was going by at the time, and she played a minor role and unbilled roles in various films at the time under that name. Mm-hmm. She couldn't dance, uh, quote, I couldn't dance or sing or write or paint. The only possible opening seemed to be in some line in which I could use my face. This was, in fact, no better than 100 other faces, but it did possess a fortunately photogenic quality for myself, end quote. This is what she told a journalist at Film Weekly in 1939. Her film career received a major boost when director Alexander Cordra took an interest in her and gave her a small but prominent role under the name Merle Oberon as Anne Boleyn in The Private Life of Henry VIII in 1933. One of the movies we will be watching today, which I just realized we never named the movies at the top of the show. Well, we were getting into Merle, and now we're going to talk about the movies as they relate to Merle. I was like, I'm just going to keep going, and we'll tell you which movies we're watching yeah. today. So we're, we will be watching The Private Life of Henry VIII today, uh, which she played opposite Charles Lawton. The film became a major success, and she was then given leading roles such as Lady Blankley and The Scarlet Pompernil in 1934 with Leslie Howard, who became her lover for a time after that. Also, let's start calling our partners lovers again. I love that. Yeah. Oberon's career. I mean, it, they're lovers if they're not partners. No, right? Yeah, you're not dating. You're just fucking. Yeah, that's a lover. That's a lover. That's a lover. We call it friends with benefits. I like lovers a lot better. Yeah. Come here, lover. I always think of 30 Rock, though, where she's just like, man, that word really bums me out unless it's between the words meat and pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Les Lemon. We should have a shrine to her. anytime. Whenever we get a permanent office, we're going to have a Liz Lemon wall. Oh, yeah. I love her. Totally do she that. lives in my soul. Uh-huh. Anyway, Oberon's career benefited from her relationship with Howard and later married to Corda, the director of the movie. Mm-hmm, remember mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm, got that mm-hmm. he sold shit he was the fuck i lost that do you know that song oh god you're like you give me a look like no i've grown accustomed to her face nope no i yeah. got nothing that's a big one the only reason i know about that is because of the simpsons oh well because Kelsey Grammer sang it to Bart Simpson and he altered the song. I think it's a big Broadway song. Yeah, I was like, it sounds so in that really... one. He goes, I've grown accustomed to your face and dreams of gouging out your eyes, you know, because he wants to murder him. I remember that scene. I don't remember what but Corda, musical that's from. No idea. But Corda yeah. grew accustomed to Merle's face. She did. Yep. Um, I wonder if he called her Queenie on the side. He was like, you're definitely not. No, (laughs) no. You're Merle now. He sold shares of her contract to producer Samuel Goldwyn, who gave her good vehicles in Hollywood. Her quote unquote mother, sister mama, stayed behind (laughs) in England. (laughs) My sister, my daughter, my sister, my daughter, my sister, and my daughter. Oberon earned her sole Academy Award for Best Actress uh, and a nomination for The Dark Angel in 1935, pervert, uh, produced by Goldwyn. Unfortunately, due to distribution, 
we could not watch that movie. That mm-hmm. was what we were going to watch, but such is life. We watched a different one that I really liked. I really liked it. I'm excited we're going to talk about it. Around this time, Mm. she had a serious romance with David Niven. According to one biographer, she even wanted to marry him, but she wasn't, he was, but he was not faithful to her. Okay. She was selected to star in Corda's 1937 film, I, Claudius, as Melisania. But her injuries in a car accident resulted in the film being abandoned entirely. She went on to appear as Kathy. Yeah, I read that. It was like the movie was crucial to her mm-hmm. being yeah. in it. So yeah. they just had to scrap it. Scrap it. Uh, her next project, she appeared as Kathy in the highly acclaimed film production of Withering. Withering, 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 withering Hunt. Withering blubbering heights right pouting heights <laughs> opposite or Lawrence Olivier 1939 we will be watching this one today um Olivia played George and she played Kathy and David Niven was also in that movie ooh drama I know so much tea I bet there was a lot of oh, drama there behind was the a scenes. lot of drama we'll get to that tea later <laughs> we will we will uh the next movie she was in a song to remember in 1945 and as the Empress Josephine and Desiree in 1954. According to Princess Merle, a biography written by Charles Hyam with Roy Mosley as the co-author, Oberon suffered damage to her complexion in 1940 from a combination of cosmetic poisoning and allergic reaction to sulfa drugs. Alexander Corda sent her to a skin specialist in New York where she underwent several de-abrasion procedures. The results, however, were only partially successful. Without makeup, noticeable pitting and indentation of her skin could be seen. Mm. Oberon retired after interval and moved with Walters to uh, a a new gen. She moved in with somebody else. Robert Walters. Yeah, yeah. Do Do you know about Robert Walters? That name sounds familiar. So, side Robert Walters, sidebar: Robert Lay Walters on, on me. and Merle Oberon got married. Yeah, for a few years before she ended up dying. Yeah, I was getting to her death. And after he died, but he, he was, was a long-term partner of Audrey Hepburn. That's what. That's why. Yeah. That's how I know him. Yeah. I was like that guy. I know that guy. Who was that guy? Yeah, I did some digging. I was okay. Like, he was like a Dutch well, actor, and he was did before a bunch of stuff. he got on the hot Hepburn train. But he was he on was, the he was on the older Golden Age Hollywood lady mm, kick. Yeah, that's cool. I'm into it. They moved to Malibu, California, where she died in 1979 at the age of 68 after suffering a stroke. Her body was interred at the Forest Lawn Memorial Park Cemetery in Glendale, California, where she mm. remains to this day. That's the life and times of Merle Oberon. Very fascinating woman who, even to the, I mean, the digging that I did basically said that she told people up until her death that she was born in Tasmania and yeah. claimed up and down that she was Australian. Well, so and there was another bit, because I had done some dating too, that she had, like, a after, I think it was like 12 or 14 years after her mother had passed away, she had commissioned an, an, a painting of her mother to be done, and she had made them paint her skin shades lighter. Yes. So that 
nobody would would be hip to it. So the denial ran deep. And I think too, the other bit of information that I had gotten Denial was, and shame. Denial she and shame. So what shame. other people shame you enough for it? Especially like if she fell in love with that guy and he's like, Oh, I can't date you, you're obviously not white. That that's shit's hurtful because you feel like you find someone who you love and who you can be with, and then they find out some detail and you're like, Oh wait, you're a bigot. Um <clears throat> but also at Robert Walders' request, her money went to her children, or I think in part her children and then a bunch of other some other things. I can't remember. But he didn't he requested not to get any of her money. That's a good hubby. Sounds awesome. Yeah. Sounds like they had a nice good little dude. thing before she initially died way too. How old was she when she 68. Died? It's not that old. That's not that old. No. She could have lived longer. Yeah. She could have seen the 90s. Easily. <laughs> she was gorgeous. She aged very so well. So pretty. Even, I mean, it's unfortunate with all the makeup poisoning, allergic reaction. I was thinking about that. Like, what's your what's your take on that most of our makeup is poison still yeah. to this day? That's was my, if that was what your question is, it very much is. Uh, there's a documentary on Netflix. I think if I remember correctly, it's called Beauty. And each episode goes through like hair products, mm-hmm. skin products, makeup products. And their episode on makeup, like going in and being like, this is where your makeup comes from. 90% of it comes from these nasty, dirty sweatshops in China and they get imported over here and they're full of all sorts of nasty shit. Well, it's just interesting to hear her quote about how she didn't have any skills, like she couldn't dance or sing or paint. Yeah. And all she had was her face. Yeah. And then she got in that car accident and like damaged her face. Like she went through a windshield. Yeah. And so that's why that happened. And then the makeup incident, like everything was damaging her one way to which is why she make money. She retired. Said, yeah. Well, it said she had a nice quiet retirement. So it sounded like it was. And she had quite quaint. the career. Unlike Freddie Washington, who basically dipped out on her career real early. I think I would like to kind of tie all these episodes yeah. this season together. So I'd like to be able to go back and talk about them. But I feel like Freddie Washington could have used her platform. We're going to talk a lot about people not knowing how to market themselves. Mm-hmm. I feel oh, like God, she yeah. could have. I know that it was difficult to fight the system as a mixed race person. And she was like getting down on not getting roles, but I feel like she kept fighting and kept doing activism along with still trying to snatch roles from people. I feel like she could have used her actor platform for her activism, Mm -hmm. much like we see today. Mm -hmm. She could have been like someone who started that. I wonder if there's an example of somebody else around that time that was able to do that more successfully that didn't kind of tap out, but we also don't know all the circumstances behind what made that person just want to skip out. Because I think there's a lot of, especially the more you speak up, the more hate mail and just hate starts coming towards you. People throwing stones through your windows. I know, but leaving, leaving acting to go be an activist for the black rights movement. Mm -hmm. That's also a difficult path. Like either way you, 
like she was going to be ruffling feathers one way or another. I feel like she could have been more effective at her end goal, which was to bring more rights. I I feel like part of it that she was more rights to black actors. Right. As well as wasn't part of it though, that her being so outspoken was like blacklisting her in a way like people were not wanting to work with her because she was too And she wasn't, it was like a double edged sword. She was outspoken and she wasn't black enough. Mm -hmm. She wasn't dark enough. They wanted the, they wanted, uh, the 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 anti mammy sort of too dark for the white yeah. parts too light for the black parts yeah. yeah what i would call the perfect shade of hollywood brown today was not that back in the 30s and 40s yeah. and 50s um because now hollywood's like we got to double down on our minorities <laughs> yeah but it's <laughs> we're going to get like, someone to play all these different roles <laughs> it's still like treading lightly no for sure pun intended yeah <laughs> treading light skinnedly <laughs> but um, anywho well uh this episode is gonna be the first episode where we are going to switch our format up just a tiny little bit um i feel like i talk a lot <laughs> and chloe talks a lot too so i'm gonna give her more opportunities to talk a lot um so chloe and i are gonna start reading the descriptions not together but together you know you'll figure it out together forever oh (laughs) i just have this image of like our grave plots being next to each other like john waters and divine not that they're next to each other right now because john waters is wonderfully living but Hopefully not next to a bunch of... We that was knocking on, on a table. Well, um, it's as close as I've yeah. got to wood. Uh, find a stud somewhere. <laughs> um, oh, my God. I lost. Oh, but hopefully not next to dead babies. But anyway, because <sighs> that's where... Didn't, isn't yeah, there like yeah, an actual yeah, baby yeah. cemetery, which is yeah. super grim? Anywho... <clears throat> The Private Life of Henry VIII, from 1933. The film begins 20 years ago into King Henry VIII's reign. In May 1536, in the immediate aftermath of the execution of his second wife, Anne Boleyn, Henry marries Jane Seymour, who dies in childbirth 18 months later. He then weds a German princess, Anne of Cleves. This marriage ends in divorce after Anne deliberately makes herself unattractive so that she may be free to marry her sweetheart. That's a good plot. I mean, one of many. That's the thing. There's many wives. So we will get to see all the different devices. Death, making yourself ugly, etc. Anywho. Free to marry her sweetheart. Henry next marries the beautiful and ambitious Lady Catherine Howard. She has rejected love all of her life in favor of ambition. But after her marriage, she falls in love with Henry's handsome courtier, Thomas Culpepper who had attempted to woo her in the past. Their liaison is discovered by Henry's court, and the two are executed. The weak and aging Henry consoles himself with a final marriage, Jesus Christ, (laughs) with a final marriage to Catherine Parr, who proves domineering. In the final scene, while Parr is no longer in the room, the king breaks the fourth wall, saying, 
six wives and the best of them's the worst. That is a quote I wrote down as well. So why should we give a shit about the private life of Henry VIII? So I think it's funny because there was a lot of movies around that time dubbed the private life of. Nobody's life was private fucking ever. Not then. Because also the Tudors, so many stories have been made off of their drama. As we were talking about we were. when we watched So this, much so that they realized the Tudors. Henry VIII was not that sexy and they had to put in a much John. sexier person. Oh, Lord, girl, we can't be talking about it. I'm going to get John Reese. Jonathan Reese Myers. Oh, yeah. Ifens is a different one. Yeah. Jonathan Reese Myers was Henry VIII and the Tudors. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sexiest, like, softcore porn sex scene i've ever seen in my life it's fucking amazing just i you don't need to watch the whole show just go watch season one of the tutors just go watch it <laughs> just the first ep- just first the, two episodes is it no it's the i think it's the last episode of season one because okay. he he's in season one he's courting he's trying to get rid of Catherine of aragon and he's trying to get because he had so many wives he had the spanish wives catherine was the spanish one first and she doesn't even get fucking screen time in this movie they're just like fuck it catherine's nonsense she's a distant voice behind an imaginary wall yeah for sure but they catherine of aragon gets a whole season and then we've got ambulance nonsense for another season the other and then they kill her by the end Oh, spoiler alert. They kill her. (laughs) Immediately. 500 year spoiler alert. So I guess that is something we should address at the top of why we should give a shit is why should we give a shit about a movie that only shows Merle Oberon for like five minutes? Because this is the first time that she even gets five minutes of screen time. And not only does she get that five minutes, she You get that five minutes, girl. She's stunning. She's oh, prettier yeah. than anybody else in the rest of the film. And that's including my home skillet, who we're going to talk about in my next Which is funny because you're just like, why'd you chop her head off though? Because she was pretty. Like she was the, the hot one. So, this whole film, the whole reason this film got made was to be a vehicle for Charles Lawton. It was that just a fucking big jerk to run around jerk and off sesh. Yeah. Um, and his wife at the time, who was Elsa Lang- Lancaster who we see later on in the film. Originally, story was only going to focus on the marriage of Henry VIII and his fourth wife, Anne of Cleves. But as the project grew, the story was modified to focus on five. five (laughs) Yeah, five of the six. Only Catherine of Aragon was omitted because, and I quote, they had no particular interest in her, end quote. Describing her as a quote unquote respectable woman. And so she had no, no like zazz for them to work with. I guess it's Jesus. yeah. It wasn't it wasn't dramatic enough. Yeah. So well, Charles Lawton and Elsa Lancaster, who played Anne of Cleves, they were married in yeah, like you said, in real life from 1929 to 1962 until he died. Yes. Which is really sweet. That's yeah. a long time. The whole like goose thing that she got. Mm-hmm. It was like her and Charles used to go walk around the lake. And feed the geese, and that's how she got the hissing for Bride of Frankenstein was from hanging really? out with geese. It's that's she's so, it's her doing okay. her best impression of geese, which is fucking funny as shit. Well, so I guess they appeared in many of the same films, but they were seldom teamed up together. So this this and another one for late, like much later, many years later, 
different we, ones where they're actually in the same room scenes together. Scenes together mm-hmm. and they're interacting and they have, honestly, most of the movie is about the two of them. Um, Corda, the Alex, Alexander Corda, the director, chose to ignore the religious and political aspects of Henry's reign mm-hmm. as the film makes literally no mention of the break with Rome. <laughs> the whole reason... It really like the does. The whole <laughs> reason why he is able to like murder murder all these wives is because he starts the Church of England. History, fun, fun, fun history lesson. But if you guys fucking forgot, they totally just blew over it, and they only focused on his relationships with his wives, like he was a big old hoe, and he was. But they should have definitely mentioned. Did not mention the church. Did not mention the church once in this movie. There was definitely space to do it within the film yeah 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 did you know no (laughs) i don't know i don't know did i know (laughs) no that sorry i was taken aback by your by by your no Uh, Um, they had the best supporting actor and actress categories been established by 1933 it is all but assured that elsa lancaster would have copped the award for her right riotous eccentric portrayal of Anne of Cleves but the supporting Oscars were not initiated until 1936 her Anne of Cleves was fucking hilarious it was it was so, so funny. funny but yeah not until 1936 was it initiated so she yeah. would have won mm-hmm. which is kind of a bummer but I guess you know I get it you had to have those kinds of performances for someone to realize that shit, maybe we should be giving Oscars to supporting actors and actresses. Yeah, you should. Let's develop an uh, actor's academy where we can vote on people. It's all a well, scam. They, they did. They just weren't, they were figuring it out, I guess. So this movie was a lot more of a commercial success than they were originally like assuming really? it would be. Um, Corda was a prominent figure in the film industry at the time, and a United Artists signed him for a 16-film deal after this movie. It also significantly advanced the careers of Lawton, Donnett, Oberon, and even to a little bit, uh, uh, Elsa Lancaster, even though she was pretty well established, has really helped nice. push her a little bit. Lawton would later reprise the same role in 1953, a film called Young Bess opposite Gene Simmons as his young daughter, Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. So it's going on post him murdering all of his wives, raising Elizabeth the first. Yeah, what was that? It was, The movie was... Young Bess, I just said it. No, the other one that they acted in together. Oh, the Ilsa and Charles. Yeah. It was... Witness for the... Pro- yeah, Witness for the Prosecution. That sounds fun. Let's watch that. Tyrone Power, Marlena Dietrich, mm. Charles Lawton, and Elsa Lancaster. Yeah, we should totally watch this. That sounds like fun. That was the only other one that they were in together, in scenes together. Oh, with. Cool. Do you want to know some more fun facts? Yeah. Yes. So, <clears throat> just kidding. So because of the banquet scene where Charles Lawton is fucking going to town. Dude, that motherfucker eats so much. Clearly, <laughs> um, Charles Lawton for many years thereafter was often given a free roasted chicken without utensils by restaurant owners as a joke because they thought it was funny. That's gross. <laughs> That's nasty. That's not the reputation you want. Only to only. To I mean, I would love head. free chicken, but come on. What the fuck? I wonder though. They I didn't see anything on whether 
like how he felt about it or if he was just like okay and then you're like you're adding to his whatever um okay also i think we were talking about henry the eighth maybe being gay Oh yeah, I did. That's just a me. Was, That's just was a me thing. He forced into having so many wives that you can see even in the film all of the kind of castle folk, if you will, where like he needs to take a wife. Oh yes, he needs to take a wife. And you're like, give that man a break. Like his wife just died. He just granted he beheaded the other one in order to get that wife, but give him a minute. But gay question mark. Um. My whole postulation about him being gay was um, maybe just because he seemed to have a lot of anger towards women. Mm-hmm. You yeah, wouldn't kill so many wives if you loved and respected women, which he very much did not. He did not respect or love any of his children no. who were females. He sent them all off to go live somewhere else, more or less. Um, I just, a lot of, times that like anger towards women if you haven't been abused by a woman and that's where it stems from it stems from a lot of times i feel like it stems from being gay and wrestling with your homosexuality feeling Back in frust- those days frustrated not being able to be the person who you want to be and love the person who you want to live and now you're right. forced by the church to keep marrying these people who just hammer home that you aren't the person that you're supposed to be right Granted, you're the king, so if anybody could do whatever they wanted and get away with it, it would be you. Um, but speaking of which, I thought this one the sword sharpener at the beginning for who was going to chop mm-hmm. off it, uh, looked like Scott Thompson from the Kids in the Hall. Oh my god. Speaking of gay men. That's like, fucking funny. I was like, oh my God, that looks like Scott Thompson. And I thought that the barber of the king looked like Reese Darby. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Didn't he look like Reese Darby? Like so much. Like if I was like, oh whoa. Uh, but also, so according to Benny Barnes, Charles Lawton was a method actor. And when Wendy Berry giggled during a scene to the actor's aggravation, he bit her on the arm, breaking her skin, exactly as the real Henry often did when angry with his wives. Yeah. So we talked about method acting with Mary Jennifer. Yeah. And what's what is your thought as an actor? On I'm pretty sure acting? I mentioned it when we talked about it with her. Um, that wasn't on this I... medium feel like there is a because my, my don't stance, bite me i don't know what you my have. stance is complicated because i did i was trained in in stanislavski which is method mm-hmm. um i feel like there's a certain place in time for method a- acting i feel like there's a you need to be authentically yourself as well as authentically the character you're playing mm-hmm. but i also feel like there needs to be a line i've always been a person who like you need to be able to cut it off. You mm-hmm. can't take it with you. Um, ha ha ha! That's a play. I was in it. <laughs> you can't take it with you anyway. Um, I like I I've worked with actors who, when they're not in a scene with me, I still have to call them the character. Mm-hmm. I'll do that. I'll respect your process. I personally feel like it's healthier to shut it off and take a break. Mm-hmm. Shut it off. Don't take it home. Mm-hmm. Being late to the set, physically harming other actors, mm-hmm. verbally assaulting other actors. Christian Bale is known for a lot it of this. It doesn't feel like an excuse. It's bad behavior under the guise of method acting. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if you're 
being in that moment and authentically yourself, it's going to play off. You don't have to pretend to be Henry the Eighth and bite your co-star because at the end of the at the we're all the acting, end of the day like we get it. You're not Henry the Eighth, yes, or you're not Batman, yeah. or whatever the fuck. You know what I mean? So you need to be able to hang it up, and you yeah. need to be able to like. That's your best interpretation. I know some people would really disagree with me, and a lot of those old, old fucking like coaches would be like, "If you are not bre- living, breathing, being that character, then you can never give an authentic performance." And I do not think that's true. Again, there wouldn't you- be multiple paths to processes in finding characters if it, there was only one right way to do it. There is I one agree. right way to There's do it. There's always multiple ways to get to the to one to an to to a solution so to answer and basically again, to answer your question i don't think there's anything wrong with method acting if you don't use it as an abuse technique and i do feel correct. like it un- traditionally actors who are extra fucking people go overboard and they get real fucking extra with it i don't right. think it's healthy i feel like you can do a mix yeah. i try to do a mix i think that there's multiple like we said like we said there's multiple ways to come to to arrive at a, at a creative solution as well as i just don't i don't feel you're not that person no matter how hard you try no matter how hard you imagine or feel like he came to you in your dreams you're not that person so you do have to draw that line in the and sand. And you're doing an interpretation of that person. Correct. At the base. So just like your you, best. That's what I'm saying. That's your best interpretation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As many people were, are, how many people have played Henry VIII? A ton. Right? So how many people have played Superman? How many people have played Batman? Right. It's your take. So like at the end of the day, what actors are supposed to do is just be that person authentically. Mm-hmm. Don't think you need to abuse the cast and crew around you to get to that authentic organic space. Mm-hmm. That's my thought on method acting. Correct. That was good. <laughs> that was good. I think that's a valid thing that needs to be talked about because it's, I just don't, I think it's, pe- it feels like it always comes back to kids in preschool or something like daycare, some kids having a fucking tantrum. Don't give into his tantrum. At a certain point, it's, it's almost psychosis. You're putting yourself into psychosis because you're completely leaving reality. Right. We are getting paid to, well, some people get paid. Some people do it for free. <laughs> um, but an actor's job is to play the part. We are playing. Play is the key root word in all of this. It's not supposed to be some keyword is playing so motherfucker don't bite me you break the skin i don't know where you've been i've seen you eating raw chicken i've seen you eating roast chicken after roast chicken after roast chicken so gross maybe he was just hungry Mm. (laughs) he's like give me another roast Mm. chicken no (laughs) oh my gosh and bringing it back to merle oberon william wyler was stunned by merle oberon's beauty and recommended him to his cousin carl lemay to his surprise universal signed an actress but it wasn't merle Oberon who he thought it was it was benny barnes who ended up playing mm. Catherine howard the fifth wife mm, okay and eventually merle Oberon did get a part of the project but there was just these it sounded like there was these direct william wyler you know coming to use her in many films later on but it just seems like they were just so struck by her beauty but again, she was it's that, fucking gorgeous she was dude. and she definitely had this kind of 
sort of wider kind of flatter face that was able to distinguish like have the light hit it in such a way that and these beautiful eyes that really just stunned so she has stunning. she has like like her mother being your asian you can see it mm -hmm. she has hooded eyes mm -hmm. and most caucasian europeans do not have hooded eyes it mm -hmm. sets her apart from literally everybody else she's on screen with mm -hmm. but it also in that black and white light it I don't know. It casts new shadows on her face that mm -hmm. I don't know. She's stunning. That you don't stunning. really see stunning. That you don't really see often. But I think that as a person of mixed race, that you end up getting exoticized. These people are like, oh my god, I've never seen anybody look like you. So we have to. Push I know, it but I know her a being party to her a own exoticism. Is what gave her a career. Right. You have to embrace your differences. But I feel like that didn't always work for everybody. No. But she was pretty light. Yeah. Like, I could see how she was confused still, for a Caucasian still, person. Right. You're still light, so it's okay. Your eyes are different. But that's the only difference we're willing to let in. Yeah. And she has very Indian hair. But you, I know that. You and I, I talk, talk about, about that all the time, like the different textures and different uh, hair types from different backgrounds. And she very much has the thick, like Asian hair, Asian hair that's very straight. And you could tell that they had to use a lot of fucking heat in this next movie to get her hair to do what it did. So they're like, let's set this movie in Louisiana. <laughs> or that was, I mean, that wasn't the next one, but like, they're like, let's set the thing in Louisiana. It'll deal with her hair a little easier. Yeah, right. Granted, the humidity may make it more difficult, but... Um, it doesn't, it just falls flat. Mm -hmm. It's not like curly hair because their hair is so pinned straight. It doesn't hold to curl. Mm -hmm. That's the problem with like Middle Eastern Asian hair is I that see. it doesn't hold a curl at all period it's difficult Does it hold heat really well like no burn you no okay no that's why when like my hair ladies from india would come in and sit in my chair and they say i want to look like kim kardashian and i was like you need to go get, get her wig. jeans because i can't do that to your hair yeah you just give them a good card to a good wig shop yeah basically here's a wig cap is how you do that now get yourself a good wig now you look like her Hi. Are you ready to move on to the next movie? I am. Um, this movie is so good. <laughs> and also really bad. I don't know, man. I have qualms with all romance. Qualms? So Wuthering Heights is a adaptation by, a film adaptation by Emily Bronte with two dots. I have some. Umlauts. So, oh, thank you. You know all the fun names. Not all of them. Oh, umlauts. 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 <laughs> Sounds like something you say when you're getting the Heimlich remover. Or a stomach bug. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a traveler named Lockwood is caught in the snow and stays in the estate of Wuthering Heights. Despite the cold behavior of his host, Heathcliff, late that <laughs> night. <laughs> Shh, don't giggle at me. It Wait. was just like, Heathcliff, hey girl. <laughs> Late that night after being shown into an upstairs room that was once a bridal chamber, Lockwood is awakened by a cold draft and finds the window shutter flapping back and forth. 
Just as he is about to close it, he feels an icy hand clutching his and hears a woman calling outside. Heathcliff, let me in. I'm lost in the moors. It's Kathy. <laughs> Lockwood calls Heathcliff and tells him what he saw, whereupon he's enraged. Heathcliff throws him out of the room. Once Lockwood is gone, Heathcliff frantically calls out to Kathy and runs downstairs into the snowstorm. Ellen, the housekeeper, tells the amazed Lockwood that he has seen the ghost of Kathy Earnshaw, Heathcliff's one and only great love, who died many, many years ago. When Lockwood says that he doesn't believe in ghosts, even though some random-ass specter just he grabbed just, him. Yeah. he's evidence, described, bitch. That was what I was giggling about. He just described what he just said he doesn't believe in. Yep. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Ellen, Ellen then tells him this epic-ass story of how Kathy and... The end. He, <laughs> Kathy and Heathcliff. The end. As a boy, Heathcliff is found in the streets of Liverpool by Mr. Earnshaw, who brings him home to live with him and his two children, Kathy and Hindley. At first reluctant, Kathy eventually welcomes Heathcliff, and they become very close. Nudge, nudge. Wink, wink. <laughs> very close. But Hindley treats him as an outcast, especially after Mr. Earnshaw dies. About ten years later, the now grown Heathcliff, and he is grown. He's hot as shit. Lawrence Olivier, get it, fool. Heathcliff and Kathy have fallen madly in love and are meeting secretly at the Pinstone Crags Moors. Hendley has become desolate and tyrannical towards Kathy and the servants around him and forces Heathcliff to be a stable boy out of hatred for him because he's hotter than him. Mm -hmm. That's what's up. One night, as Kathy and Heathcliff are out together, they hear music and realize that their neighbors, the Linton family, are having a party. The pair sneak inside in the Linton's estate by climbing over their garden wall. But the dogs are alerted and attack them. One of the dogs bites Kathy and she suffers a leg injury. Heathcliff is forced to leave Kathy in their care. Enraged that the Linton's glamour and wealth would so entrance Kathy, he blames the family. It did. It really did. <laughs> he blames the family for her injury and curses them all. Kathy fully recuperates while staying for months with the Lintons and returns home. I thought it was a week. Um, the research I did said months. It was it an extended been. period of time. A long ass time. She was drinking a lot of milk and cream at the time <laughs> and butter. A lot of dairy products. We're going to get into the da- her into prescription the later on. Edgar Linton has fallen in love with Kathy and soon proposes after Edgar is taken back to Wuthering Heights. She tells Ellen what has happened. Ellen reminds her about Heathcliff and Kathy flippantly remarks that it would degrade her to marry him. Bitch. Come on. You were literally just begging for his dick two scenes before. She and now, ugh, teen, this is why teenage girls should not get married. Just saying. Heathcliff overhears. Withering Heights Mental Hospital. That's what they <laughs> forgot to tell you. <laughs> Heathcliff overhears and leaves before he can hear the rest of Kathy realizing aloud that she really belongs with Heathcliff, not Edgar, despite their class difference. Should have stuck around for the whole conversation, bro. You would have saved 
an, at least an hour of this of movie. Yeah. yeah, no, for sure. When she discovers Heathcliff has overheard, she runs after him in the moors and during a raging storm. And I mean, she gets all wet. <laughs> she didn't take a coat out. Edgar finds her in a big old dress. Yes. Oh my God. The dresses, the dresses in this movie. Mm-hmm. Just watch it for the costumes. Edgar finds her cold and ill. He summons the doctor, Kenneth, who nurses her back to health. Soon after recovery, Kathy and Edgar marry. Duh. We saw this coming. Heathcliff then disappears to America, but returns years later, now wealthy and elegant. He has refined his appearance and manners to literally just to impress Kathy and secretly buys Wuthering Heights from Hindley, whose gambling and heavy drinking debts have brought him into financial ruin. Kathy remains with Edgar despite Heathcliff's return and denies her love for him to spite Kathy. Heathcliff begins courting Edgar's naive younger sister, Isabella. I would say that she courted him. He really was like, I guess. (laughs) He said yes. He did. She was really on his jock, though, for real. Mm -hmm. She was all about it. Despite Kathy's objecting strongly to both Isabella and Heathcliff, the two of them do eventually marry. Her objection scene is one of the funniest fucking things I've seen in my life. It's a tantrum. She slaps her so many times, but it's like the most weak-handed, limp-wristed fucking slap. Like, we come from Freddie Washington last episode, like, ripping a bitch's weave off, and now we've got this, like, light little... Yeah. Little slaps. Girl, get in it. Get into it. If you're gonna slap this hoe, slap her. Get in there. This little pouty-wristed shit. I just thought it was funny. A broken-hearted Kathy soon falls gravely ill. Heathcliff rushes to her side against the wishes of a now disillusioned and bitter-ass Isabella. <laughs> Kathy finally tells Heathcliff that she loves only him, and they reconcile on her deathbed. <laughs> Forgiving each other, Some looking wild, longingly into each other's eyes. wild-eyed looks. <laughs> This death scene is something the fuck else. <laughs> um, anyway. And dead. <laughs> At her request, Heathcliff carries Kathy to the window so she could see the moors one last time before literally dying in Heathcliff's arms. It's so and funny. And she just dead. goes, and she just <laughs> flops over and she's dead and he's like holding this body up, just staring at like, the he window. He doesn't know. I was like, he knows. He knows. <laughs> There's a little thing that happens when someone's body goes limp like that. They shit themselves. It's not just shit. It's everything. (laughs) And it is an unforgettable scent. So Heathcliff asks Kathy at that moment to haunt him until he dies. Which that's That's quite the fucking sentiment. Yeah. So heavy. As Ellen finishes her story, Dr. Kenneth arrives to tell Ellen and Lockwood that he saw Heathcliff on the moors with a woman, only to find Heathcliff's corpse alone in the snow. Ellen realizes that he saw the ghost of Kathy, who now haunts the, now the two of them haunt the moors together in a happy spooky ever after. Why should we give a shit? Because it's spooky as fuck. So, um, so this is actually interesting tie-in to our Christmas horror episode last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Victorian horror was a thing. These, this is a Victorian story. Emily Bronte was an established Victorian romance novelist. Mm-hmm. 
um, akin to Jane Austen. I feel like all these women writing all these love stories really just didn't get out of the house very much. Their representations of love are really um, bombastical. Well, I mean, for American viewers too, right? Because a lot of those Victorian writers were English and thought of things a little differently. But I think I, I found this note of producer Samuel Goldwyn felt that the script was too dark for a romance movie, which maybe around then people needed something a little lighter to lift their spirits, given all the war-torn climate and everything like that. Yeah. But so he asked several people to take a look at the script, one including a young John Huston, who said that the script needed no rewrite and it was perfect as it was. <laughs> Mic drop out. <laughs> I mean, that's what one man said. But you said there was others that you read up on. Oh, yeah. Were, I got all others. sorts. I got all sorts of fun casting nonsense um so the project was always meant to be a vehicle for merle oberon who was under contract mm -hmm. with goldwyn at the time however when olivier was cast as heathcliff vivian lee wanted to play the role with her lover and then future husband she really wanted yeah, to read that too yeah fucking elbow that shit out this role is mine's now yeah right so <laughs> studio execs felt the role couldn't really go to an actress who was largely unknown in america but they did offer lee a part of isabella linton mm -hmm. she declined because she's got a big old dick and geraldine fritz gerald was cast in her place lee was then cast in gone with the wind the same year and she got a Academy Award for Best Actress, so worked out in her benefit, I feel like. Oberon did not receive a nomination at all for her performance, which I think snubbed. is a fucking snub. Dude, fucking snubbed. Um, you remember how I was telling you that I took that I had a fun like David David story? Yeah. <laughs> Tell me your David David story. <laughs> okay. Also, too, just sidebar it. One of the first things that happened in the movie when they bring in this child that they dub as Heathcliff. He was about to say what his name was, by the way. I think yeah. he knew what it was. But they were like, your name is Toby now. <laughs> <laughs> Go to Gente! <laughs> your name is Heathcliff. <laughs> but he was like, it, he was, he was, she was like, oh, he's so dark. And you're like, yeah, it's as dark as though it came from the devil. And you're like, dude, fuck you. Liverpool is still in England. But still, yeah. dark as if it came dark. from the devil? No. Rude. <laughs> rude <laughs> racially rude okay david niven remembers filming oberon's deathbed scenes recorded in his best-selling book the moon's a balloon what? The... <laughs> what? He, his biography is called the moon's a balloon maybe he thought people would remember that uh, the real uh, filming of this scene was a lot less romantic than <laughs> after telling Wyler. Isn't that the case with all romance scenes <coughs> is that they always say that it's like, oh, but wait. Oh, but it's wait. never romantic. It's always like not sexy, even though it looks real sexy because of editing. It is not sexy in real life. Actually, we might be able to tie this into you people here in a second, but Ooh, uh, give me a second. So after telling Wyler that he didn't know how to sob, he had been given menthol mist substance to appear as if he were crying, which instead of making his eyes water, uh, green goo came out of his Ew, nose gross. and Oberon immediately exited the bed. She fucking left. She noped she out. She just noped out. She's like, fuck that. 
I thought that was funny as Dude, shit. That's really, I mean, it's creepy. Even though she's the one that's supposed to be fucking dying, he's the one that has all that green goo coming out of his face. But I would have thought that he would have had an, a little bit easier of a time of crying considering that David Niven dreaded this movie. Did you read about that? No, I didn't. David Niven dreaded this movie, not only because he was playing a thankless secondary role, but because he dreaded working with director William Wyler again. A thankless. Like, <laughs> oh my God, bro. I mean, I had read okay. that. Okay. Laurence Olivier was quoted as saying, like, there was a lot of him complaining, like, I've done the line standing up, I've done the line sitting down, what do you want from me? Blah, blah, blah. Like, but later is like attributes William Wyler's style of doing that to making him a better actor. Uh, <clears throat> but Merle Oberon was uncomfortable working with Niven after their year-long love affair ended in 1936. Mm. So three years prior, they were bumping uglies. Now they're supposed to be in love but i think it was probably well, honestly, easier for her to draw i don't really love you but we're together that's what i was about to say <laughs> i feel like that helped her performance to be like because she had some serious fucking pout face in this movie she did she looks so pissed off at david niven like the whole time so now that adds like that adds up well spice so more tea to be spilled merle oberon and Lawrence olivier apparently detested each other so it was all the more spicy, I think. I don't know if maybe Vivian Lee was behind the scenes doing that thing where she's like, well, I can't believe you're working with that woman. I want to, I want that part. I want to be that person okay. in that role. The more and more I find out about Vivian Lee, the more um, she is Blanche. <laughs> oh, yeah. From Streetcar Named Desire. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in she's real like, life. I want this. Including Lawrence Olivier. Yeah. They, he was married. And so was she. Yeah. Like They did eventually marry each other, though. Yeah. For a little bit. For a little bit. For a little bit. And then for a minute. They did not. But legend has it that when director William Wyler yelled cut after a particularly romantic scene, Oberon shouted back to Wyler about Olivier, tell him to stop spitting at me. Gross. Which always makes me think about that bit from Friends, if anyone ever watched Friends, <laughs> uh, where they... Gary Oldman is on and he's talking about how you have to spit to be a great actor. And so he's like, like, like just doing all this spitting. But he was like, why are you making that face? He's like, you keep spitting on me in my eyes, like in my mouth. And he's like, yeah, you have to spit to be a great actor. So that's what that reminds me of. That that's maybe funny. Lawrence Olivier spit a lot. To, oh, to definitely. Project. Project. Yeah. I mean. You're not focusing on keeping the spittle inside. You're just trying to get the Ew. words and emotions out. Oh, my God. And my last note is peacocks. Oh, my God. The Oh, wait. The peacocks and the butter. So, yeah. like, for okay. The peacocks. <laughs> peacocks and butter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I bet that would be delicious. Okay. Peacocks Real smothered talk. in butter. Because peacocks are a bird. So, if you plucked all them beautiful feathers, use them I for a craft project. Peacock tastes like chicken probably mm, it could Maybe be more game or game or like quail or something but if you poach that bitch in butter it would taste delicious yeah probably Throw some fresh herbs in there poach anything in butter little, tastes delicious too so these motherfuckers have peacocks and they keep running through the peacocks why don't you just get rid of the peacocks if you keep kicking peacocks or out of your way or sequester them to a specific 
part of the yard, not dude, all peacocks, of the yard. Dude, I know they leave have fences you, all the when time. When have you seen a sequestered peacock? Never. They're literally shitting all over the zoo, there's probably, screaming. There's probably peacocks all over the moors, just because they're like leaping, <laughs> like, like, like that stupid sound they make, and they're literally just a sign of rich people. Oh, it's, it, it's just, just it's, they don't give a shit about those or fucking peacocks. A sign of the Arboretum and Little Armenia in California. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I know that was about. And then, like, the same like nonsense out in that courtyard when she's like recovering, the doc's like, yeah, give her. <laughs> Give her butter and, and milk. Butter and cream. And cream. <laughs> like, what? what is that? What is heavy dairy products going to get to do? 1938, 1939 science, or even before that, since this is Emily Bronte. Maybe the fats would suck all the sickness away. I don't know. Fix the humors. You know Back how then when they talked about humors. That's true. The vapors. <laughs> But what if, like, you know, what if, like, w- when you're hungover and you eat a burger, something fat and greasy, and it sucks out all the va- all the booze? Maybe they imagined that that was the same situation for whatever illness she had, which was obviously a broken fucking heart. Yeah, and yeah. being left out in the rain and the cold. That movie was crazy. In it was the good. windy moors, I just I get so I had to read a lot of classical literature in college and high school. I'm fucking over all of it. These bitches were delusional. Emily Bronte. That is always what we we come down to. Like, look who's talking. And Emily Bronte. You're just like, stop being, stop it. Delusional. Just stop it. Also, anyway. that motherfucker was in America. And he was like out there living a new life, getting some money. Dude, he should have stayed. Heathcliff totally should have stayed in America. His heart on for Kathy was totally unfounded. Granted, he did save that shitty brother that threw a fucking rock at his face. Dude, he's an asshole. A big ass rock. That's a new dickhole. Also, though, like, he was holding up that rock, and that kid was like, I'm gonna keep walking forward. And I was like, he's gonna throw a rock at your fucking face. 100%. Not, not I wasn't the right. Shall we move on to dark waters? wade our way into dark waters? Yeah, Sorry. so dark, dark, dark waters. We didn't mention dark waters at the top of the show. Dark, dark, dark wa- waters. I now, I, now I say it. Dark waters. You gotta say it. For nineteen forty-four. John Waters and less John HAFK and more Louisiana Creole. More suck, suck, <laughs> Dark waters. Sucky Stackhouse was hanging out in dark waters from nineteen forty-four. <laughs> Take it away. <laughs> Dark waters. When the ship that is carrying Leslie Calvin and her wealthy parents from Batavia to America sinks, Leslie, one of only four survivors, is haunted by the death of her parents. Just before she is to be released from the New Orleans hospital in which she is recuperating, Leslie writes a letter to her only living relative, her mother's sister, Emily Lamont, whom she never met. Emily writes back to from Belleville, Louisiana, explaining that she had explaining that she and her husband, Norbert. Okay, I'm sorry. Sidebar. Do you ever just hear Norbert and just think Eddie Murphy? Yeah. Like, yeah. Always. Every time. Okay. Anyway, back to Norbert. She and her <laughs> she and her husband, Norbert, are residing at the ancestral plantation there and inviting Leslie to stay with them. You Leslie- did say ancestral instead of ancestral, right? Yeah, ancestral. Okay. Just double check it. 
Ancestral. I mean, it is Louisiana. I was like, it's Louisiana, girls, the South. You may have heard correctly, even though you did not hear correctly. You no, know I what see I mean? what you're saying. <laughs> you heard me, but you didn't hear me, but you heard me. <laughs> Anywho, Leslie travels to Belleville, but when no one appears to meet her at the train station, the neurotic Leslie faints. That's so mean to call her neurotic. I mean, I get it's accurate, but the neurotic Leslie faints from the heat. The ta- <laughs> This Georgia heat. I know they're not in Georgia. The town physician, George Grover. So this George heat, that's why she fainted. This dude was coming up. George Grover is summoned to treat Leslie and convinces her to accompany him to his office. There, Leslie confides her fears about being alone and her recurring nightmares about her rescue. Feeling compassion for the distraught Leslie, George offers to drive her to the plantation. There, they are met by the overbearing Mr. Sidney, who introduces himself as a guest of the Lamonts. I was like, who is this Mr. Sidney? He's real pushy as a quote-unquote guest. Is that what, did you get that vibe? Oh, That's definitely. I, I was oh, like, yeah. this dude oh, is yeah. all like way too involved. Oh, yeah. Way too involved. And Leslie's eccentric Aunt Emily, who claims that she never received Leslie's telegram notifying them of her arrival. Before departing, George cautions Sidney that Leslie is emotionally unstable and needs to forget her traumatic ordeal. After Emily escorts Leslie to her room, Sidney extracts her telegram from his coat pocket and tosses it in the wastebasket. At dinner that night, Sidney urges Leslie to relate the tale of her tragic voyage, sending her running from the table hysterical. The next morning, Sidney and Cleve, the overseer, take Leslie on a tour of the plantation and force her to tread perilously on a ledge along the bayou. As Cleve is about to coerce the terrified Leslie into joining him for a boat ride, George appears and is, invites her to join him on his round. At a bayou shack, George introduces Leslie to his Bordeaux family, who asks them to lunch. Leslie's spirits are uplifted until she attends a movie with the Lamonts and Sydney that night and views a newsreel depicting the sinking of a ship by a German submarine. The next day, as Leslie suns herself in the garden, Pearson Jackson appears to ask for her help. Pearson Jackson. Pearson explains that he worked on the plantation for 12 years until the Lamonts arrived, and Cleve fired him. That night, George takes Leslie to a dance, and Leslie recalls that as a girl she would dance for her mother, who was unable to walk. When George kisses her and proposes, Leslie runs into the house asserting that she can never see him again. Agitated, Leslie then confides to her aunt that she can never marry because she suffers hallucinations and belongs underwater and belongs under the water with her mother and father. Jesus, that is dark. Yeah, man. <laughs> After going to bed, Leslie hears a voice calling her name and wanders outside, seeking its source. She is startled by Pearson, who has also heard the voice and warns her that spirits are pursuing her. Terrified, Leslie takes refuge in the house and phones George, who is out on a house call. After leaving a message for George, Leslie questions Emily about Cleve and Sydney and charges that one of them is trying to drive her insane. When Emily begins to reminisce about Leslie's mother's love of dancing, Leslie realizes that she is an imposter. The next day, Pearson warns Leslie that her aunt and uncle are imposters and arranges to meet her in the bayou that evening. When Leslie goes to the appointed meeting place, however, she finds Pearson's dead body. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, I was really bummed when that happened. I saw Me it coming. Too. I saw it I coming, did, yeah. but I was just like, damn it. You gotta keep, I mean, he's black. He's going to die. <laughs> That's how it works. 
definitely in 1944. Yep. Uh, Leslie decides to catch the next train leaving Belleville, but is prevented from doing so by Emily, who summons her to her room. The next morning, George returns Leslie's phone call, and Leslie insists that he immediately come to the plantation. When he arrives, Leslie apprises him of Pearson's murder and claims her aunt and uncle are imposters. Incredulous George writes out a prescription for a tranquilizer. After sending Leslie to her room for a rest, George informs Sidney that he is certain that Leslie is suffering from delusions and will arrange for her to see a psychiatrist. In her room, Leslie, des- Leslie desolate, looks at the prescription and realizes that George has actually written a note. After George departs, Sidney addresses Norbert as Pinky and Emily as May. When May, who has been hired by Sidney to pose as Emily, objects to harming Leslie, Sidney reminds her that she and Pinky are already implicated in the Lamonts' murder. At the boathouse, meanwhile, Cleve has taken George prisoner. After George tricks Cleve into admitting that he murdered the Lamonts, which was not hard because Cleve was drinking heavily. Which we have seen Cleve. This is now our third time seeing Cleve on the show. I know. I Cleve was making is, notes. I just, I forgot his name. Elisha Cook Jr. Uh, Elisha Cook Jr. Yeah, he. I, he I, was, I had a fact about that later. I can bring okay, all cool. the movies that we've yeah. seen or maybe we yeah. might recognize him from. Oh. Ah, after George tricks Cleve into admitting he murdered the Lamonts again, which was not hard because he drunk. And honestly, now that I'm thinking about it, like we we're talking about, he's drunk in a lot. Of, he plays a drunk in a lot of movies. Maybe he just has the face of a drunk. I don't know. Uh, George tricks Cleve into admitting that he murdered the Lamonts. He begins to taunt Cleve about performing Sidney's dirty work. Soon after, Sidney appears with Leslie. After demonstrating how he used a phonograph to call out Leslie's name, Sidney explains that he engineered a diabolical plot to drive Leslie mad and acquire her inheritance. Sidney then orders Cleve, George, and Leslie into a motorboat, but when he commands Cleve to kill George and Leslie while motoring into the bayou, Cleve boxing the two men begin to argue or bicker or have a spat. I don't know. These are things. These are Southern things. In the confusion, Leslie and George jump overboard and hide in the water lilies. When Leslie collapses with terror, George helps her ashore and Cleve and Sydney follow. Cleve charges into the swamp but sinks into the bog of quicksand and drowns. George then calls to Sydney and offers to lead him out of the swamp in exchange for his gun. After Sidney discards his weapon, George picks it up and orders him back into the boat. When Leslie climbs in and follows George's instructions to start the engine, she realizes that she is recovered at last. So why should we give a shit? This movie was insane. This movie was insane and dope. I'm glad was, that we <laughs> couldn't find the other. This I mean, movie was crazy. It was really good. For but, a 1944 movie, this movie tackled some really intense shit that people didn't even have uh names for at the time uh they just uh, called it what did you call it before uh so this movie well not i said the vapors but you said why should we give a shit did we say that that? okay well uh i was gonna talk about dope uh shell shock ptsd there was no name for PTSD at the time. She's having a fit, or that's yeah. Like that. Those are there's like little names, but they were kind hysterical. of all encompassing. Ladies were, were always hysterical. It, what did you call it? Really, I said the vapors, but you said Wait, I don't remember <laughs> what you said. I don't know. I don't know what I said. I say a lot of things. The va- heathers or the something or other. I can't remember. I don't remember. 
Uh, I thought that this movie was really interesting because it's a, essentially a film noir and it unintentionally looks at PTSD and gaslighting. PTSD That's wasn't all what I was thinking yeah, about was the movie Gaslight. gaslight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So there was what well, PTSD wasn't a term until 1980 and really it was only used for soldiers mm -hmm. and it was called shell shock for a really long time. Mm hmm. It hasn't been until recent decades that PTSD has kind of expanded its umbrella. And now there's things like complex PTSD or childhood PTSD. Like it, it's a more encompassing diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, and on to <laughs> there are some very, there's very, different very types of trauma that yeah. you can have post-traumatic distress And from. this movie highlights all of them. Ooh. There's a lot. So there are some very specific themes that we now think are kind of overplayed, but this is one of those movies that kind of established those themes. Even evil has standards. So this uh, theme is in reference to the imposters objecting to Mr. Sidney's murdering Leslie mm -hmm. and reveal that they were involved with the murdered. It's so called accomplice motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> when the, the two were like, Oh, we didn't know that the, if you, we would have known that you murdered him, we right. wouldn't have been involved. So yeah, even though they're duh, evil, that's why they. That's what it made me laugh a little bit. Was he was like, duh, that's why I didn't tell you. Um, the <laughs> fat bastard trope is in this one. Mister Sydney is overweight and a sociopath. Yes. The Florence Nightingale effect is present. Doctor George falls for his patient. That mm -hmm. kind of old bag gaslighting. So much gaslighting in mm -hmm. this movie. Inheritance murder. Is a like inheritance murder, I think, is a trope that, um, oh my god, I'm blanking on her name. Agatha Christie, yeah, uses a lot. That is like a, a murder mystery trope that's played to death. There's Killing a lot of inheritance stuff going on in England, yeah, for sure, and in America, yeah. Kill and replace Sydney and Cleve murder the original people. That's one that's played out. And then villain in a white suit. Mr. Oh, Sydney yeah. has a white suit. He and does. and it's to project, you know, I am a good pure. Guy. I am bright. But underneath is all this darkness. Yeah, say, so unfortunately, your face says otherwise. I just thought this movie was extremely fascinating. Fascinating. Weird. Wild stuff. Fascinating. Well, so Mr. Cleve, Elisha Cook Jr., he was in House on Haunted Hill. Which Correct. That's where I recognize him as the drunk. He was in the Maltese Falcon. Correct. And he was in The Big Sleep. Yes. And he was in Rosemary's Baby. Yes. He's he been was in on the show a lot unintentionally. Five times now. Five yeah. times. Yeah. Five times Elijah Cook Jr. So I had done in my research, I found that the Lux Radio Theater did a broadcast, a 60 minute radio adaptation of the movie on November 27th, 1944, with Merle Oberon and Thomas Mitchell, Mr. Sidney, reprising their film roles. That's fabulous. That's awesome. Isn't I would have cool, seen that. Right? Also, I was totally thinking of you when I found that fact because you were like, that movie is long. And I was like, I bet Aaron would have liked a 60 minute adaptation. <laughs> Short and sweet. It yeah. means it was doable. It was yeah. what it means. They could yeah. have shortened it. <laughs> they definitely had some editing wiggle room for but this still, movie. As far as other films go, this was short. Oh, yeah, for sure. Other films that yeah. we've watched where we're like, oh, we're going to watch it so much. And lastly, Egg and Sherry. Egg and Sherry. What's what up fuck? with the weird co food combinations? So Egg and Sherry is a cocktail. And one of the biggest, and I, I had like dug into it because I was like, ew, why? That's always, I feel like that's I don't like how I eggs. Is. And that's how I do a lot beverages. of my research. I think it's gross. 
Well, one of the biggest reasons people add raw egg to add is to add more protein to their diet. Shaken egg white in a cocktail means that the proteins realign and stretch to create new links, much like they do capturing air bubbles in the process, changing from clear to white, and they expand in volume, like the protein alignment that happens when you're cooking it. So it's like you're cooking an egg minus the heat. Yeah, because you're using alcohol. So that's, that's how they prepare sushi. Sushi. They sushi prepare sushi. That's how they prepare sushi. That's a really good tongue twister. Sushi. Sushi. <laughs> but they always say that's why bodybuilders toss it into their fucking chocolate milk or people toss eggs into their beer that was a big one other than sherry you toss it into your beer and it's to add protein because you're not eating you're just drinking and so we got to add some protein into your diet however in my research i remembered because you and i love to cook we grew up on the food network we want to bring back dinner in a movie put it out with the us universe. with us nobody else fuck y'all with us some network <laughs> pick us up but Netflix. Often, scrambled we see eggs, like scrambled eggs cooked in sherry and cream. That's like an old school kind of breakfast thing. But that would make sense where they're like, here, you can't eat. So instead, we're just going to fucking crack this egg into a little glass of sherry and then give that to you. That should make up for it. That's disgusting. I don't know if he tossed any cream in there. I don't think he did because I drew a little egg and sherry because that's what that it looked doesn't, like. That doesn't appeal to me at all that's so disgusting no you don't like that one no no good for you, you know what i did like merle oberon also too i think she was really great this was a really this was great for her the doctor had that doctor by the way had all the lines yeah, faux show, faux the show, lines. i was faux like show. he i don't think he got florence nightingale syndrome i think he was fine he had lines and he was ready <laughs> but no merle oberon Gorgeous. I think it's unfortunate that her career was cut short due to a sequence of series of events that were constantly trying to destroy her face and her livelihood. Besides the car accident and the makeup, she constantly struggled with her ethnicity, with her heritage, with her upbringing, and that trauma you could see in her performances. She was able to really tap into that. And mm -hmm. I think that that really aided her. She played point. that woman a lot, that woman yeah. who was in tortured and in love. Yeah. But I wonder if she got so much if she got makeup poisoning because they were trying to lighten her up so much. No, for sure. That's what I'm that's that yeah. was kind of the point yeah, that I was at, getting at. Yeah. Is that a lot of times makeup makeup man, they used to put even more Piling wild on. shit in my in makeup. I mean, we've you and I have talked about the the radium girls. Like they used to put radium and fucking makeup and shit it'll make your skin brighter yeah because you're like, literally glowing from radiation put arsenic and stuff and shit they used to put all sorts of wild stuff in cosmetics there wasn't really a regulatory agency out there keeping an eye on what was in those cosmetics mm -mm. so i feel like yeah you're an actor you're gonna wear a lot of makeup but also i feel like she was trying to cover herself up as well in mm -hmm. the process whether she was or they were as well. It's, I feel like if, if you're a seasoned like contract makeup artist on the lot, you've seen every type of skin. But most of those were men. That's true. They were mo almost exclusively men. And they didn't really work on women that well. It was mostly let's throw some so powder do, and makeup. So did the women do their own makeup? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
much like a lot of people of color on sets today a lot and i've human i've talked about this recently uh there's a big thing about hair and makeup artists not being able to do hair specifically for people of color mm-hmm. and i think that's fucking appalling <laughs> You don't learn in cosmetology school. You don't learn anything. You learn others like from curly to straight hair and there's some shit in between, but you don't learn what to do with curly or ethnic hair. Like Mm -hmm. there's it's at a loss. So a lot of times people of color on sets will have to do their own makeup and hair. And I think that's fucked up. We it's 2023. We should know what to do now. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, especially Let's since have there some is classes. A, there's more of a movement now with yes. like Abbott Elementary and like yes. a Black Lady Sketch Show to have yes. all black like cast members. Oh, and but it's hold not, on, it's not hold all, on. All black though, they still those have some, women some white have straight hair. Black Lady Sketch Show, most of those women have straight hair. Wigs, Abbott, girl. Abbott Elementary, wigs and weaves. Wigs and weaves. Wigs but and there's because well, I've seen the behind the scenes on it. And there's but a I'm lot saying of wigs they and come to and... set with hair that they've already pre-done. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They went and got that. They had a conversation with whoever and got their hair approved. Mm-hmm. That's what happens. You can't do anything to your head. Right. Well, that's what I mean. They're all the women that are acting in it. A lot of times are the ones that are also writing it and the sh- and kind of running that show. But they also have black hairdressers who know how to work yeah. with a weave and work within that and kind of do all these looks because they're playing all these different but facets that's the of exception, black women. not the rule right that's now. That's what I'm saying is that like there's it's a few and far between and it's starting to but these women like Robin Thede and Kinta Brunson have to bulldoze their way through that. And oddly enough, Quinta Brunson, you know, in between her kind of like BuzzFeed and her now Abbott Elementary, she was on a Black Lady sketch show. And mm. so they kind of, I think maybe she got a little bit of a taste for that and was able to kind of take that and pla- take that and push off from there and continue and hopefully spread that, you know, like, hey, we need to have this, this, and this. But, you yeah. know, Merle Oberon, the biz, the biz. So that's it for this week. Thank you again for listening. Chloe, we're covering John Gavin next week. What are our movies? A Time to Love, A Time to Die from 1958. Spartacus from 1960. And Psycho from 1960, which we have yes, been waiting I was so for. We did a whole episode on Hitchcock. And I specifically did not wait do, it. I still, I did not do that one to wait. But you know anyway. what I think that is? I think that means that you and I have restraint. Also, ex- he has exercise. a bunch of other movies and I wanted to cover, cover his other movies because he has a career outside of The Birds and Psycho Precisely. and Rear Window. You know well, what I mean? I think it's wise that we choose, if we do choose to do these bigger movies that of course are required viewing, but you're there, we're, we're, Drawing it to your attention for another reason. Correct. Other than it's a big movie or it's a director you already know. We're, yeah. ca- we're drawing out info that you Correct. might not have otherwise known. Yeah. Edutainment. So, yeah. Uh, so don't forget to follow us on all our socials, the Required Viewing Podcast, on all the things, Aaron Moline Official on all the things. Chloe Riggs Makes Things. On all the things. Requiredviewingpodcast.com. Oh yeah, get Check your it. merch. Don't, don't forget get it. your all the things. Don't sleep on our merch store, fools. 
Or, or don't. <laughs> or whatever. Do whatever you want. Live your life. But also check it out. Yeah, you should. Maybe get yourself a t-shirt. Anyway. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Until next time, happy viewing. Happy viewing. Hello. This is required viewing. This has been a Required Viewing Network production. Thank you to our producer, Michael Murray, social media manager, Chloe Riggs, and showrunner, Aaron Mullane, as well as an additional thank you to our guest contributors.